For September 23rd, 2019, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 586. Lady Edith hops in her Bentley because she's ballin'! Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject Downton Abbey to a level of scrutiny that it definitely does deserve. Who knew that this show would fulfill the mandate from Community, six seasons and a movie, and we've just watched the movie. Who's we? Well, I'm Matt Rather, and that's my good friend, Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hey, Matt. How are you? I'm, I'm doing uh, most excellently because I have seen the Downton Abbey movie very recently, and Pete and I are like your smart, funny dowager countesses from the internet to uh, you know, never never happier than when we are sitting together having tea in the drawing room or the library or what have you, and trading witty barbs, uh, you know, over the over the rims of our teacups. And uh, Pete, I'm I'm so delighted to have seen this film and and be talking about it with you. I can only say, Matt, delight is hardly the word for it. <laughs> That's my best dowager attempt, right? <laughs> it hardly suffices. Delight hardly suffices to describe. Uh, no, no, I am delighted. I was just trying to be to be uh, sassy and shady, uh, and it's hard to do that when you have unremitting positivity for the subject, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, uh, Pete, I'm sure we are quite agreed that it hardly suffices. <laughs> or suffices. No, never mind. All right. <laughs> now, Pete, this is one of our this is one of our storied two handers, but uh, we're going to do it tonight. Pete, we must all pull together for the greater glory of Downton. Now, I've not, I've not been as good an identifier of Downton Abbey moments uh, as you are, and you can explain in a second what that is. But I feel like this was a film that had a thesis statement, and it came in the middle of the set or, or towards the end of the second act. Um, or second movement. They're not, they're not really acts because there isn't really unity of action in this film. There sort of is, but it's done in three distinct stages, which are almost different genres, right? Like the, like Avengers Endgame. This is a film with three, uh, sort of different genres to it. Um, a, uh, a sort of intriguing action, action movie, a, uh, a sort of slapstick uh, farce, you know, and 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 at the end, a, a, a sort of a sort of a tragedy, I guess, you know, um, mm. and, it, and like uh, unlike history, Downton Abbey uh, repeats itself first as farce, second as as tragedy, and and in the middle of the second uh, the second. Um, Sort of movement of this film when uh, when uh, the and spoiler alerts by the way all all you know uh, for all all uh, all seasons all books of um, Downton Abbey the uh, uh, Anna says uh, she's pitching in to help carry something heavy or do something that's not her job and Carson points out that's not your job and she says tonight we must all pull together for the greater glory of Downton and that was um, that was sort of I think a meta statement a, a thesis statement for the film the actors who have gone on to their careers the you know the writer and director and you know all the all the production people who have you know must all once again um sort of pull together this is a this is a film that has a really you know 
really big sort of meta plot, right? That, uh, you know, all the, oh, the king and queen are coming, you know, but the, the real plot is that you are coming to the movie theater, right? Yes. And that, that the, the, all the silver is being polished to gleam for the king and queen. Well, no, it's being polished to gleam for you. And the grass is being cut for the king and queen. No, it's being cut so that the, you know, you can have those incredible aerial shots, those crane shots, the, uh, uh, you know, the likes of which the television series never saw once, um, Right. And this is all, you know, this is this is all being done in a way, Pete, you are the king uh, and I am the queen. And, and here we are tonight. Anyway, so uh, I identified not a Downton Abbey moment, but a Downton Abbey thesis statement. But I would love to hear from you uh, sure. having having watched this film, a film that was so much better than it had to be. Yes. Wasn't it <laughs> really? It really it would have made all the same money if it was 20 percent, if it were, if it had been 20 percent as good uh, as it is. But um, yeah. what what Pete is a Downton Abbey moment and uh, where was where was one? Where did you identify one in this particular incarnation of the Abbey? So uh, as some people listening may know, we did years and years of Downton Abbey episode recaps on a special supplement podcast. It's still out there. I I toyed with the idea of listening to our recap of the Downton Abbey finale to get myself up to speed for the Downton Abbey movie. But I did not do that. That would have been interesting. Right. But we had a couple of different tools that we used to uh, analyze Downton Abbey episodes. And one of them is the Downton Abbey moment. The Downton Abbey moment uh, is distinct from the aspect of the show or the kind of theme of the show that connects the episode that you're watching to a larger social trend, right? Every Downton Abbey episode is in some way looped into the larger macro plots across Downton Abbey, which are about the decline of the old uh, English aristocracy and the rise of the bourgeois middle class and the shifting and liberalization of industrial society happening in the early 20th century in the north of England, right? That's that's the sort of ma- macro plot. And World War One is involved and Titanic's involved and, and Lady Edith uh, almost marries a Nazi, a guy gets beat up by Nazis, it, all sorts of stuff happens. But um, the Downton Abbey moment is the moment in the episode that helps you understand what the episode is doing. And the way reason it works, and I think it works for a lot of TV shows, and we talk about it for a lot of TV shows, especially serialized TV shows, because you got to pick which events in your serial story are going to fall into each episode. And then you want to add the little character development moments and the little window dressing moments that help pull the episode together. So it can be hard to figure out what exactly an episode is about. Uh, just from looking at the part of the story that's told in the episode, mm. because they could pick anything, right? Um, so instead, what you re- what I would suggest, if you really want to have that sort of deep, rich kind of inhale the inhale the full bodied single origin coffee kind of flavor of a Downton Abbey episode, if you really want to open the mouth of that brandy snifters towards all ten thousand receptors in your olfactory sense in a Downton Abbey episode, you want to look for the scenes that have nothing to do with the main plot yep. and what sort sorts of general thematic statements are made or specific thematic statements are made in those moments. And then you go through and you can see, oh, wow, 
it applies to this plot. It applies to this plot. It applies to this plot. And I always get a little skeptical that this schema actually works. But then whenever I watch Downton Abbey, it's like, oh, no, it works. Right. It works incredibly, incredibly well because Downton Abbey is very thematically intertwined and heavily symbolic. And it's and the, the characters are, you know, they're they're performative and it's it's all kind of very choreographed. And it's not like there's a ton of kind of messy improv that's happening in Downton Abbey episodes. Right. It's all very finely crafted. So. With that in mind, um, the moment in the Downton Abbey movie, which, again, is so much better than it deserves to be uh, as, as a movie adaptation. And it had to be not that it deserves to be that than a, than a movie adaptation of a TV show needs to be. I mean, I'm talking about a half dozen rounds of applause from the like two thirds empty theater of mostly people over the age of 60 that I saw this with. Right. Like it was it was a joyous occasion to watch it was, this it movie. It was quite good. And it was definitely there was def- it was definitely fan service. I saw a about I mean I'll I'll you probably saw it sooner but about like 30 40 minutes into the film I saw how it was all going to work out right I mm-hmm. I cottoned on to the plot against the king I figured out who the girl was and uh what was going to be done with her and how all everything crooked was was to be made straight by the end and uh I had this immensely pleasurable experience of just 90 minutes of everything working out for the best <laughs> This is this is a Downton Abbey story in which Lady Edith gets everything she wants, which which is not how Downton Abbey stories usually function. Um, Lady Edith usually uh, gets some sort of horrible thing happened to her and then complains bitterly about some venal thing that doesn't matter and then just gets lambasted ruthlessly by her loved ones. Uh, But that's not what happens in this in this Downton Abbey movie. People have moved on. But anyway, the Downton Abbey moment for me, uh, the last Downton Abbey moment, perhaps of all time. There's a little bit well i don't see why my dress should be mistakenly sent to new york and this big old fat dress be mistakenly (laughs) sent here well eventually it works out right she gets the dress taken in she gets to wear the dress that she wants uh she gets to have bertie with her for the early months of her uh young heir's life it's it's all, all well and good but but the downton abbey moment for me right which is is about the thematic threads that are curling around those plots that we're talking about and not and sometimes swimming upstream with them and sometimes swimming downstream with them it's about daisy's wedding uh that mm. daisy daisy and andy right so andy is one of the footmen in downton abbey and you know what maybe you haven't watched downton abbey in a little while so we'll try to keep you up to speed a little bit of what's going on i'm not going to give you a full summary there's a race car driver guy who shows up at the end if you don't know who he is it doesn't matter he doesn't matter anyway uh <laughs> there's a uh that andy one of the footmen is in love with daisy who is the cook and as we know from downton abbey daisy has kind of been studying and going to school and she's going to be uh kind of make something of herself in the world she's not going to just be a cook for the rest of her life and andy uh as we know loves daisy but has been illiterate until very recently and and has kind of had a there's a certain skepticism around his willingness to improve himself and so one of andy's big plots is that he secretly tries to improve himself to impress daisy uh and and this was part of the redemption of thomas the evil footman uh slash evil butler in the very 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 end of downton abbey was that thomas became a sympathetic character ultimately by by Shireen Baratheoning Andy the Footman, right? By teaching him how to read. Yeah. Uh, and um, even though I don't think it actually really worked. But at any rate, Andy wants to marry Daisy. Daisy is putting off the, the time frame and says we're going to get married whenever we want. And uh, and while they're having this conversation, do you remember what they're having the conversation over, Matt? I don't. 
It is a it is a big tray of souffles. Oh, right. right? It is course, the pudding. Yes. The pudding for the evening. This is the last dinner at Downton Abbey before the arrival of the king. Well, no, it's it's what it's the first dinner of the Downton Abbey movie. And the pudding course is a bunch of souffles. Mm. And Andy is saying, I want to marry you. And Daisy's saying, we'll get married when we're ready. We got so much stuff that's doing I so much I want to do with my life. Mm. Uh, the king is coming. Daisy's like skeptical about the king and all this other stuff. Um, shortly after all this, Miss Patmore is saying, oh, I know what I want to cook for your wedding. And the scene kind of cuts off, which is one of the harsher things I've seen in Downton Abbey. We don't get to hear what Miss Patmore wants to cook Daisy for her wedding. But over the souffle, souffles, Daisy says the line to Andy that for me was the crystal clear uh, Downton Abbey moment for the whole movie, which was you have to take those up before they collapse. Because mm. <laughs> and, and, and she's saying it to Andy. And it seems to me very much that it's about their relationship. Right. It's that on one hand, Andy needs to be elevated, right, to the level of a serious suitor or husband for Daisy, like a real partner for Daisy, uh, or he's going to collapse. Something bad is going to happen. In the context of collapse, this can mean either a material failure like Downton Abbey, if it doesn't get elevated, right, collapses. If, if Lady Mary doesn't continue to bring up Downton Abbey, Downton Abbey could collapse. But it also has a moral characteristic wherein the movie is full of people who don't experience a sort of personal elevation that they probably ought to have experienced at some point where their life to have gone the Way that they were, such as the army major, right, who decides to assassinate the king of England. Well, if he had been, he needs to have brought himself up or he's going to collapse, mm. uh, right? Tom Branson, a lot of the movie rotates around whether people trust Tom Branson now or yet or not, right? Is Tom Branson an Irish Republican who's going to try to fart in front of the king of England and we can't trust him? Is he going to try to assassinate the king of England? We don't know, right? Uh, is What's he going to do? Well, you know what? It's time to either bring Tom Branson up or, or everything is going to collapse. And, and in particular, I think that what this is, is it's a sort of um, reframing of, of what might be more comfortably termed class consciousness as well, because it's about how all the servants in Downton Abbey, ha with maybe a couple of exceptions, have been living in the social structure of the north of England that's been persistent for a long time. And we've seen a lot of change, right? Uh, but they still very much hew to their social roles as kind of inferiors to their uh, – and I think inferiors is the wrong word, right? They're low, they're the downstairs crew, and they kind of look up to the to upstairs, and they yeah. support the Crawleys. But there's – in this movie especially, there's a sense that their dignity has not been appropriately elevated. Uh, and even, and it, it really is brought into account not by the fact that you know the Crawleys are rich and they're not because they feel – as much of a of a of a pride and possession of the Crawleys' possessions as the Crawleys do, sure. right? Like Anne is more upset about the stuff being stolen from the house than Lady Mary is, uh, right? And and they, so it's not like they need to be elevated with regards to the Crawleys. It's that when the other servants from the king show up. All of the servants are already at a sort of higher social level. The plumber is at a higher social level than Andy is or than anybody is, right? Uh, and and there's and, and this idea that all of the people around them who are basically as good or not as good as they are are being more valued by society, and they need to kind of be brought upstairs or else everything is going to collapse. And I would even say that the real moment for me where this all came together, and I think this is where this dovetails about with your idea, Matt, about the sort of broad scope, right, which is like we all need to come together for a downtown. We all need to come together for the movie theater is remember the, the scene where 
the king, right? Are we talking about King George at this point or King Edward? What yeah, is, I'll, who do, is king? I'll do a little Wikipedia yeah. for the for the king. But yeah, so the sure. K. No, it's it's King George because I think everything has a GR on it in the okay uh, in the. But I'll I'll double check that. Yeah, and so when the when king when the king comes out, yeah, King George V comes out to the parade grounds and inspects the York Regiment, right, or whatever it is that's happening, and the band plays "God Save the King," right. Um, and this is a trick that the movie plays many times, I mm. think. But this was the scene where it stood the most out to me is that when this glorious song of God Save the King is playing, the camera isn't looking at the king; the camera is looking at the crowd. And the it seemed to me like the hit you over the head point of this was that the point of the monarchy is to elevate the people. Right. And and the point of the monarchy is not to elevate the king. And the king, even though he's present in the movie, is not really framed in a kind of regal way. He's usually kind of off of the side, sitting down or standing in kind of the corner. And, and even when they're having the big fancy dinners, the real focus of a lot of the shots is the regalia and the servants. And this notion that it's the people who are kind of standing around this yeah. ritual who are really ennobled by it, not the nobles. Uh, the nobles are the people who have the responsibility to show good character, uh, live up to their responsibilities, to the community. Right. Uh, what would it be if the what would it be like if everybody thought the Queen of England was stealing everybody's silverware? Right. It's like a it's like an existential threat to the monarchy. Right. It's like the, the, the point of the God save the king is to bring up the people, the people of England and of and this is England, but in course of the British Isles and Ireland and the United Kingdom and all and, and the Republic of Ireland, but by extension, you know, all of Europe and whatnot, all need to be brought upstairs like a souffle or else it's all going to collapse because you can't have just the king on the top and everybody else feeling like crap. Uh, because if that happens, then you have like assassinations and thefts. You have failures of character. You have, uh, you know, you have the you have Robert Baratheon, the uh, the shopkeeper, right, whose proudest moment in his mm. life is the idea that his store is going to supply the King of England. Yep. And this is a very different sort of class narrative than the idea that the nobility exploit the lower classes, right, and that the uh, the lower classes need to destroy the nobility in order to kind of reclaim the surplus value of their labor. In this case, the value of the labor of the lower classes is is uh, enlarged in both a cultural and material sense by the sort of artificial demand created by having a monarchy and also the sort of sense of occasion and the kind of acts of creative display and and uh, I mean and spending right uh, that the monarchy brings to town and employment which which kind of takes us back to the very beginning of the economics of Downton Abbey when when the Abbey was seen as a source of employment more than as an as an ongoing concern. Uh, but that was my Downton Abbey moment, was this idea that this is a movie about these characters that we love needing to be elevated uh, into this sort of 20th century middle class in order for that and also into the sort of popular sovereignty of the British monarchy, the English monarchy, British monarchy, whatever you want to call it at this point. It's the empire in the mm -hmm. movie. Right. Um, but that the the sovereignty of the country needs to be recognized as deriving from the dignity of the people and existing to serve the dignity of the people. And the servants of Downton Abbey are the servants of the country, which means the country exists for them. And we are the servants of going to see the movie and the movie exists for us. Right. And, and you have to bring it all up before it collapses. 
Uh, that was my Downton Abbey moment for the movie. I mean, that's uh, it's sort of interesting, and and I think I don't know the the film seems ambivalent about whether it's worth worth the effort. Like there there is some hand wavy talk about like oh it's a center for you know the village and it's a center for the 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 town and the, or the the estate the village and the county I think are the three concentric circles right around mm-hmm. with Downton Abbey as their their center the estate the lands you know whose rents or you know whatever the or I guess it's rents at this point um and not some sort of fe- feudal arrangement um you know yeah that happened uh, in season 3 right uh, derives from you know from from whose rents the uh, or rather I should say from the rents on which uh, properties the uh, income of the family derives the the town which has sort of economic uh, independence because it has you know shops and and businesses and th- you know beds and breakfasts and things like this and and uh, and then the the county which is like a larger kind of political political organization with that is sort of independent of the of the house and yet still looks to it as a, a um you know as a kind of spiritual center somehow and like when when mary is talking sort of unmotivated like she had a bad night carrying some chairs in the rain and she's like oh is it worth it to go on uh <laughs> one of the you know she had she had one of the less satisfying um arcs in this but she's she's sort of settled you know and i i I guess all of them are like edith is is sort of settled and and you know tom they made they they managed to make uh to make restless a little bit but i i you know it's funny i thought um it was it was so interesting to me that it was a such a satisfying and such a pleasurable film uh, to watch with almost no dramatic action. Right? <laughs> then, after after Tom foils the assassination I, plot, right? right? Exactly, but they, even that was like the king didn't get killed. You're not going to kill the king, you know what I mean? It's this. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a bagatelle, you know. It's a fantasy. It's a little it's a little weird fourth theme in the first movement of the uh, of the piece that like doesn't doesn't necessarily have have a lot to do with anything except that uh, you know Tom gets once again to prove that he's kind of come over as a as a member of the family and that like he will not exactly subordinate uh his own values but that that his values have changed and that he sees the value of you know doing he he sees the value of belonging you know um his his uh motivating thing i read i i god god help me pete 20 year old me would would strangle me until dead but i read management books and uh, <laughs> You know, a lot of a lot of this is sort of figuring out what what people are motivated by, so that you can communicate in in a way that people are affected by, and you know, give them an experience that is satisfying to them uh, as you structure their work. And that that like uh, he used to be motivated by independence and autonomy, and uh, more more and more he's sort of motivated by belonging. Uh, and he talks about it sort of movingly with Princess Mary about. Um, you know, uh, 
about his daughter, where it's like, you know, I'm not sure if this is my place. I'm not sure if this is totally who I am every day, but I see her and it is her place and it is who she is and it is her family. And I realized that that is more important to me than just like self-actualizing so hard all the time that, uh, you know, that, that everyone, everyone ends up being alienated. It's sort of an, it's sort of a, an anti-alienation film, which is why the Thomas subplot uh, is so interesting, um, w- which is the Thomas subplot is about how you can be gay if you're privileged uh, and secret about it. But uh, <laughs> if you're not, if you're not either rich or important or, you know, connected to, to wealth, status and power or. Uh, or if you are, you know, if you want to live openly um, the life that makes you happy, um, then then you should be beaten up by the police and locked up and, you know, carted off to jail. Um, that, But, but you know, if you're special, you get to, uh, if you're special and you can come uh, keep it on the DL, guys, hush, hush, you know, let's not be so flamboyant all the time. Uh, you get to be, uh, you get to be gay. Well, kind of one false note. <laughs> that's one, that's a rather uncharitable way of reading that love story, Matt. <laughs> I, I thought the love story part was great. I just thought, you know, I thought it, it sort of militated against what you have, what I thought was, what I kind of intuitively felt was a theme of the film and that you have identified manifestly as a theme of the film, which is that like, we sort of, e- even even in our inequality, we rise together, you know? Mm-hmm. And that like, this was about like, in our inequality we rise and you go to jail you know yeah it's well because yeah, yeah there's yeah. always one plot in downton abbey episode that runs the opposite of the main theme of the rest of the episode that <laughs> this was the one which is the opposite right which is that like if you try to go upstairs you will collapse <laughs> right like you have to stay hidden in the closet there's even that shot of him like inside the room looking out the door right he has his own john wayne the searchers shot as he's literally inside of the closet right uh in the side uh, looking out of the door but anyway sorry i'm interrupting you I'm but interrupting no that's you. that's i mean to me this was sort of the anti-collectivist you know mm-hmm. um Platten was was the one thing where I didn't I didn't totally I thought I thought they were I thought they were having their souffle and eating it too a little bit because it's like you know we want the gritty social realism of of you know raiding the kind of underground gay bar and dance club that uh you know Thomas stumbled upon in Yorkshire but uh we 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 want that you know, social realism, and it it might even be in some sense laudable to to sort of depict this and like the, uh, the you know the actual hardships faced by people unjustly. Um, but the uh, but then like didn't want to pay a price for it, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. and like it's it's a show that has killed characters. Now now to be fair, it's killed characters when their contracts ran up out and they didn't want to <laughs> renew. <laughs> It's, Which is really the best reason to kill a character, because that way, that way, death has the characteristic unexpectedness and upsetment that normally accompanies it. Right? Which is like, what this happened? Yeah, <laughs> As right, opposed exactly. to like, okay, this is the right time, right? Matthew uh, survived yeah. World War One to drive yep. into a ditch. <laughs> 
All right. Let, let me offer a slightly different interpretation, though I don't think you're wrong, right? I think that that you're right about the the plot. But I want to add a, like a little layer to the plot with Thomas, right? Because this plot is a Gaius ex machina, right? This is <laughs> this, like this. The plot is a Gaius ex machina in like the I'm sorry, a Deus ex machina, right? In, in like the definition of how that kind of story works. In that this is that Thomas's story. When he's in the gay bar, it's this really amazing scene, right, where they're, like, intercutting with the gay bar and, like, the party that the other people are having. And it's presented as one of the sort of buoyant and supportive revelries that's holding together society, right? And this it's, it's seen as sort of a beautiful aspect of the culture, right? This is the sort of the moment of Kate Winslet dancing in the gut of the Titanic is what's going on here, right? It's like, oh, wow, like, look at this sort of beautiful side of society and, and, and look at this sort of thing that's only burgeoning now and in from the context of us watching the show we know what it's going to become in the future right there's a first time for everything is one of the things that's said uh in this and and so i think it's i think you're supposed to understand it in the context of like this is the beginning of a long journey that's going to have a happy ending but it's going to take a very long time and it's going to be sort of beyond uh thomas's lifetime that it happens this is also it's sort of like uh rick walking off at, with Louis at the end of Casablanca, right? This is the beginning of two blokes talking to each other, right? Yeah. Uh, but but the, when I say it's a, it's a deus slash gaius ex machina, it's that there's a situation, right, where the main character of this little plot, Thomas, makes a mistake, right? But he makes a mistake for the right reasons. And he makes the mistake for the right reasons, and he ends up in a situation where an unjust society has has really upended his life and is coming down on him with cruel punishment. And at the end of the story, what happens? But a man, come, a Prince Charming, right? A man, a tall man from the government comes to the unjust local authority and, and flashes the king's business card, right? The, the king and queen are coming to downtown, right? Like this is the king coming in at the end of Tartuffe and restoring the household, yeah. right? Uh, right. The king is saying that that I support your right to you know be a human being and live, not to like be uh, oh in the open because it's going to take a long time, right? But this sort of idea that that the monarchy, which is quite a bit of revisionist history, of course, right? But the idea that like the British monarchy is working behind the scenes to create. Uh, equality for gay people and like they're just taking it slow because society isn't ready for it yet in their infinite wisdom right but that's the idea is that like we're supposed to see thomas brought out of his closetedness right into his sort of like full participation in his own sexual life for probably the first time since we've seen him in the entire show do this right because the other time he's done it he got beat up by people at the fair and over jimmy jimmy was such a tool bag man i did not like jimmy i'm glad he wasn't yeah. but at any rate um here is Thomas, right, finally getting a chance to live his life to its fullness the way that he's supposed to. And here's the king coming in and saying, that's really, that's kind of the way that it's supposed to be. But I being the king and being ultimately smart and, and having the sort of correct amount of judgment and temperance will guide you on the way that you're supposed to do this, which is that apparently you're supposed to wait for 80 years and then you'll get marriage rights, right? It's it's, But it's also a love yeah, story we're gonna, because— We're going li- to—listen, there's there's a long road from here to there. We're going to chemically castrate Alan Turing— you know, yeah. 
yeah, you know, and yeah. others before uh, before we get to <laughs> marriage rights. So don't you know? Yeah. But um, Downton Abbey's always had a little bit of that going on with the Thomas character since the very beginning, where it's like you're really you're really watching it from a contemporary standpoint, and the way that he acts is kind of very contemporary. And I mean, even I think we've pointed out many many times there are like lines in the in the in the context of the show where someone will say something that's very very clearly about a contemporary understanding of of gay rights and in the context it's about hats right <laughs> and it's about everybody should be free to choose what they want you know i love this hat right and, and they're not really talking about thomas but really they're talking about thomas um so yeah so i agree that this is a plot line that's about ultimately the kind of denigration and frustration and failure and tragedy of thomas's attempt to find love in the world but also, from the context of this is a movie that we're watching in 2019 that's not entirely realistic, I think we're supposed to understand that there is something of a happy ending because we because what the, the right thing to do has been recognized and is being acted upon. And we're sort of supposed to kind of like elide the intermediate time, right? Yeah. You know, we're not supposed to like look at Rick walking off with Louie and think about the bombing of Dresden, right? Like, although at the time the bombing of Dresden hadn't happened yet, right? We're supposed to kind of think about the end of the Third Reich when we're watching that part of the movie uh so yeah i'm not saying it excuses it but i think that there's that additional function that's happening there uh which i liked a lot and thought Fair it was enough. good although yeah but also the, the love plots in this in this uh movie are perfunctory right? like they are i don't i don't think any of the characters who are in love with any of the other characters platonically familially or erotically uh there's not nearly enough time spent on any of them for it to really land there are too many um, i mean there are too many of them my i i saw this film with my mother who was a delightful companion to see mm -hmm. this uh this movie with and she was as into it as i was and also had just wonderful mom reactions like when uh when she saw the army major with you know load the pistol uh she started whispering next to me oh no oh no oh no oh no <laughs> and i was so it was so wonderful to to sort of share it you know i said downton abbey is meant to be shared you know yeah. and it's it's meant to be uh sort of celebrated in in um in you know groups of people and so i was i was very lucky uh that i had that but you know as we were texting about the film after we we watched it she uh she wrote to me i wish poor mrs patmore had a love interest and i had to remind her that she does have a love interest yes. uh it's mr mason who was william's father uh da daisy's um you know, ex-husband, I suppose, yep, yep. or late, late husband, not ex-husband. She, she married him on his deathbed, right, uh, in order to kind of fulfill his, uh, his last wishes, and in doing so, gained, like, material advantage through connection to his family, which she didn't really intend to do at all. And so, also yes, the exactly. widow's also the widow's pension from his... That's business. right. You know, he was, yeah. a, he had been a soldier. And yeah. so the, the, um... You know, and and she was really, you know, to her credit, was really conflicted about taking it uh, until literally everyone around her told her to take it. And yes, like, yes. You know, and it's like you did a good thing by by, you know, giving William what he wanted. It was an act of generosity on your part. And even if it doesn't didn't in the end cost you all that much, you know, even if you were ambivalent about marrying him and didn't actually have to marry him in the sense of, of living with him, like the the things that you did were the things 
things that he, he wanted you to do. And he, you know, this was, this was good. And, and, uh, as, uh, you know, she gets to know Mr. Mason and he becomes a, uh, kind of tertiary character over the course of the, uh, the series and, uh, takes a shine to Mrs. Patmore. And, um, they, you know, they get a little flirtatious towards the end, which is about, about the level that, that these things, uh, these things go, go around at. And that's, you know, that's, it's very nice. The, the, so Mrs. Mrs. Padmore, but my point was there are too many love plots, you mm-hmm. know, for everyone to get, uh, a bite of the apple in this, in this particular movie. And I guess Tom gets the best, uh, gets the best one in that he, you know, there is, there are like smooches with romantic music, uh, and stuff and like dancing. There is actually some sort of, um, there is some sort yeah. of, uh, I don't know, like uh, payoff, right? Yes. To his, uh, to his thing. And also he's going to get, now that he's, uh, you know, just sort of shrugged at his ambivalence, he's going to get a nicer house than Downton Abbey. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's going to marry this girl who's going to inherit from Dolores Umbridge. Uh, the, Who, you know. by the way, in real life is married to Carson. Which is oh, awesome. <laughs> the actress, funny. the actor who plays Carson, Imelda, Imelda Staunton, and uh, yeah. what's his name, Jim Carver. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm I'm taken with your description from you know twenty or forty sixty minutes ago of a tall man from the government coming to. Uh, <laughs> Coming to, I mean, a, a, he's just so dreamy, and B, um, it it is interesting that like one way, and the way you read it is that like, oh, this is this is being done under color of authority the whole time, right? And like right, the Crown right. recognizes it, and I think I think Downton Abbey actually lets us kind of zoom in a little bit and be a little more nuanced in in our reading of that, which is that the sort of royal agency, the 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 sort of official agency is uh, like a swan, you know, like a swan on the lake, to borrow a metaphor or a simile from the film. Uh, it's graceful up top, but just a, uh, god awful mess below of, of like kicking and, and splashing, uh, below. And that there are, there are sort of many small agencies within the large, uh, royal agency or official noble mm-hmm. agency, official agency that, have their own agendas. And Thomas has always been a good uh, example of this because he's, he and O'Brien were always scheming, you know, and they never, you know, and, and, you know, I'm sure name dropping, dropping the name of, of the, the Earl and, and Countess of Grantham, um, uh, before, you know, doing the, during the, um, the early seasons of the show when, the, when they were around and, and doing their dirty deeds. But the, uh, you know, but it was never, and, and sometimes when it was discovered, it was sort of explicitly shut down, uh, by, um, you know, by uh, uh, Robert or Cora, uh, ex- except that time she left a bar of soap on the floor for Cora to slip on and induce oh, a miscarriage. Man. Remember? Yes. That was evil. Yeah. Evil and that was when, when, when uh, Thomas tells Mr. Bates just to say her lady's soap to get O'Brien to call off uh, Jimmy. Or no, what was, oh gosh, what was it? Yeah, something along those lines. Oh, Jimmy was uh, going to do something. Jimmy, yeah, Jimmy was, 
Uh, right. Juan and Thomas with, fired without a reference. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, no, I hear. So I think I hear what you're saying. You're sort of talking about how there's many different mini agencies. Well, right. And that like the 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 purported progressiveness, it, it gets, you know, it gets a little hazy as to who where it actually resides. And I yeah. guess I guess it is interesting in your kind of grand unified theory of this is like actually, actually, Downton Abbey is the most democratic show of all because, <laughs> you know, it does. Uh, because uh, the camera focuses, the camera focuses on the people. I, I, I mean, it's yeah, very it's, democratic for 1830. All right. Not, well, <laughs> well, it takes place in 1930 or 1927. Anyway, it's a, bit, it's a, it's a historical piece. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the yeah, the idea is. I mean, it's not. I don't know. I guess it is. If if you have a fascist rally, I guess to take the camera and turn it away from the great man and towards the adoring throng, I guess that is a kind of progress. But well, uh, you I, know, <laughs> but in 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 that there there is this. I mean, actually, if uh, rather than kind of making jokes about it, let me take seriously your your contention about about this thing, and it actually kind of creates the the official authority as a sort of average, right? Of mm-hmm. all of these things, there's this kind. Of teeming, there's this sort of teeming mass of opinion from the most royalist and retrograde, who is probably Mosley or uh, or um, uh, Carson. <laughs> Jesus, um, the I'm I'm uh, I'm as addled as the Dowager Countess. The uh, you know ranging to you know the most Republican, who might be Tom or Daisy or you know someone like that. There's there's this whole range of opinion and kind of out of the mass of that, this defines like a a spectrum or an Overton window or something like that. And the you know the the role of the aristocrat of the noble or the king in this case, the royal, is to kind of chart a course through that. You know what I mean? Is to kind of bring the country along uh, with, you know, by, by, uh, you know, favoring everyone a little and none too much, you know, Um, to to kind of bastardize Kipling. Um, And that like that, that. You know it, that the the official authority is is almost sort of constituted, it, it theoretically constituted in this in this um, you know strange way in which you know, a, a, an amalgamation of you know lower order agencies uh, kind of in, enable uh, the higher order agency and also give it its direction. Yes, I mean there's a couple of ways in which the show interacts with what you're talking about. One of them is when it stops raining in the morning and Mary looks out at the weather and says, oh, the weather's great. It's confirmation that God is a monarchist, right? <laughs> which which she says in this movie, right? Which is a yes. joke, but is also, I think, matches up with your notion that the idea of the monarchy is not like one agency here. It is this sort of amalgam of things, and some of them are good and some of them are bad. Uh, but there seems to be sort of a – I would almost describe it as a – in Downton Abbey as a Back to the Future-esque commitment to the universe wanting the right thing to happen eventually. And like the various things that happen in Downton Abbey can't really affect or pull the universe away from – like so to, to clarify what I mean is that like when Marty McFly goes back in the DeLorean and Back to the Future, there was never a situation where like he was going to – change the air currents around his father, which changed the sperm that impregnated his mother, which meant that he would like never exist. Right. Uh, Or like that he was never going to like 
end up flying out into the void because the whole galaxy is moving really fast and a fixed point in time, you know, a fixed point in space translated to a different point of time would be in a different space relative to the galaxy. Nothing like that was ever going to happen because there's this sort of overarching benevolency of the universe in the plot that's kind of steering everything in the general direction that it's supposed to happen. This is most exemplified in Downton Abbey when like Neville Chamberlain shows up <laughs> uh, right <laughs> in Downton Abbey. And it's like, oh, like, do we like him? Do we not like him? And everybody who's watching the show knows that we should hate Neville Chamberlain. Uh, and, and ultimately, of course, nothing that Neville Chamberlain does at Downton Abbey is going to matter or change anything at all. But um, I would say that maybe the scene in Downton Abbey, which just struck me, I just had a moment when you were talking before, which kind of blew my mind a little bit. And I want to talk, talk this through a little bit because I did actually rewatch most of season one and two recently with my wife because uh, she was getting she never watched the show before prepping for the movie and also just just because um, Princess Mary is an interesting person with regards to the monarchy in yeah. this respect. So can you remember the other time that Princess Mary shows up and has a major impact in the story of Downton Abbey? Because it just came to me uh, like right right now. Um, I'm no, curious. No, I want to no, add I a little is it in the first? Is it in the first two? Uh, is it in the first two seasons? So here's the interesting – here's the little Ouroboros that we see in the Downton Abbey movie. Princess Mary is mentioned way, way back – in season, I want to say season two of Downton Abbey, because during World War One, Princess Mary becomes a nurse. Ah, and yes. it is Princess Mary. And I'm getting chills about this, right? Because if you know the story of Downton Abbey, right, Princess Mary becomes a nurse and by doing so signals to the nobility of Britain that it is OK for them to take on menial participatory kinds of jobs in the support of the war effort. At the same time, Lady Sybil, right, is looking for a way to actualize herself and contribute to the war effort and to the greater good of the people around her. She decides to become a nurse because Lady Sybil decides to become a nurse. She kind of participates in the lower class a little bit more. Oh, God, I see it happening. Oh, yeah. So the reason that Tom Branson marries Lady Sybil is because of Princess Mary. But Princess Mary has no idea that that moment in time at this point, 15, 16 years ago, right, is what made this man that she's talking to right now. So she's part of the royalty in the sense that she's setting an example, but she's not really in control. Right. She can just sort of participate in this whole thing kind of generally moving forward. And here it comes full circle. Right. Because Tom Branson comes to her, a product somewhat of the sort of paying it forward general sense of responsibility that she puts out into the universe as part of adhering to her royal duties. Right. And brings it back to her and kind of talks to her and and gives her whatever it is that she needs to move forward in her life, which ends up being kind of strange because it ends up being stay with a dude who's a real jerk. Uh, but I think I think we're supposed to understand that this was a positive thing because she's the antithesis to her brother, Edward, who ends up abdicating the throne. Um, and it's sort of like she's the kind of model of George the Sixth, who's the Colin Firth from the King's Speech, who ends up being the king who rallies the country around World War Two. But who's just this Lane, whole like yeah. Lane, Lane from Mad Men in The Crown. 
Right, right, right. Exactly. Who I really thought was going to be Lane from Mad Men when he got out of the car in this movie. And I thought that was going to be amazing, a.k.a. Captain Chernobyl. Right. But yeah. But the idea that Princess Mary's participation in the First World War comes around and helps her out with her own personal problems here. uh, We're what? We're 1927. And it was before it was like 1914. So it's 13 years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. More than a decade, more than a decade later. That's funny. That has to be too neat. That's too neat to have to to have been a coincidence. And I actually, I truly admire uh, Julian Fellows for not hanging a lantern on that. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, in the way like, uh, you you would have loved my Sybil. She became a nurse after your example. Yeah, right. She became a nurse. I became a nurse. Oh, really? Oh, yes. The Dowager says, like, we heard that she became a nurse. Remember that time in season one where I mentioned it? Right. Like that whole thing. Um, But yeah, it's just it's wild how how that kind of comes around. And so, yeah, so you're really not supposed to, I think, um, imbue in the characters, the individual human beings who are participating in the social structure like reverence. Right. You're not supposed to be like or or fear. Right. This is the person who's in charge. Right. This is the person who needs to make the decisions. It's that everybody is kind of participating in this sort of fiction, uh, this performative tradition. Right. Um, you know, constitutional monarchy. Right. We even or, get to see or, the room. From the or crown. speaking of Mary, marriage. Right. Right. Because right, at right. the end, she's she's like, look, this is not going to be fun, but we're going to make this work. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like what, what she says to the the, um, you know, uh, the Earl of Harewood um, or her, you know, her husband, her cold and and uh, uh, really assholey husband um, there is not. A, it sounds like modern couples therapy speak and that like we're both going to change to like be together. It's not it's not that it's like, no, look, look, <laughs> look we are going to keep up these appearances so hard. Yeah. You know? and I'm going to be moving folding chairs myself in the rain so that everyone can assume that my servants did it right so that we can keep this whole thing running along smoothly yeah for sure for sure um and 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 also you would even see the dance of you could interpret the dance of branson and lucy i want to say miss smith right Mm, yeah uh as uh, the dance between Ireland and England, if you if you want to locate the movie in the contemporary politic, right, the idea that right now one of the key issues with the whole Brexit question is what's going to happen between Ireland and England. Uh, are they going to have a boundary? Are they not going to have a boundary? Like what's going on? Uh, and, and there's really no way of resolving any of this without confronting head on the question of uh, Northern Ireland, uh, the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland. And the idea that in this moment, the this sort of full throated endorsement of the English monarchy, uh, British monarchy, whatever you want to call it, I keep changing it because I don't know which crown is being represented at any given time. It's really the the crown domain of the Isle of Man is really what we're talking about. The, the Empress of Canada. Uh, no, it's um, it, is that like, OK, in this full, full endorsement of of nationalistic, kind of royalistic, you know, parliamentary supremacy, practically, you also have this notion that that England and Ireland need to dance together, uh, and that that is also a marriage that would take some work and not pleasant work, uh, the kind of work where you have to move folding chairs in the rain and do some things that you don't want to do. Um, so maybe maybe uh, everybody in in uh, in London and Brussels and everywhere will see uh, them dancing and everyone will change their minds and everything will be fixed because that's that's how it all works in Downton Abbey, right? Everything gets fixed. So what did it you is, think of? Except until Downton Abbey too, you know the the uh, first blood where. <laughs> 
amazing. Lady Edith needs to have Nazi adventures. I'm telling you, she's going to go undercover. <laughs> she's going to find my- Michael. Was his name? I think yeah, Michael I Gregson. Yeah, she's got to go find Michael father. Gregson. It's going to be the great escape. It's going to be. Oh, <laughs> She's gonna. Have, she drives a Bentley in this movie. She's like Buster Rhymes. It's great. Uh. It actually. I mean, that is pretty. It is pretty great. And like them and the relationship to kind of to to automobiles and to you know uh, mobility and the idea of you know cars being this sort of great like economic enabler. You know, um, I guess I, w- I want to go in a couple of of directions, mm-hmm. but uh, what one is like the plot the kind of the downstairs plot of the second movement of the film right because the the that's really the time of the the people in service at downton abbey to to shine you know um the uh or if you're thomas to to narrowly escape getting arrested because a, a tall man from the government flashes a flashes uh, a police officer but the um the <laughs> he doesn't flash the police officer oh, right. he flashes a business card right. at the police officer right sorry i i <laughs> I mistook that. Um, the Orbin uh, Rod, right? Orbin Rod, <laughs> <laughs> Orbin Scepter. Uh, um, I think he was the last. Run. I think George, this George, who George the Fifth. I think he was the last person to be crowned to have like a, a ceremony where he was crowned Emperor of India. Um, as well, you know, it's uh, yeah. it was a, a different. Um, Different time, guys. It was a different time. That is one of the things this movie is about. Yes, um, but the the sort of the downstairs plot because they all disappear when they when they go to the ball uh, when the the episode culminates. Oh, sorry, film culminates in a, um, a big party at a ball. Yeah, when Lady Edith hops in her Bentley because she's balling. <laughs> but the uh, uh, you know the the ball which takes place at a different in a different location just because they wanted a nicer set for the ball to be on <laughs> rather than rather than shooting it at uh whatever it's called high clerk castle that stands in from <laughs> from stands in for downtown abbey uh but the the servants all disappear and so like let's uh let's give them their due um Pete, this this film uh, you said contained one of the funniest moments in any film that you've seen <laughs> this year. It oh came, yeah, I, I'm guessing it came in the second act. I believe so. Yeah, I mean, you know the one I'm talking about, I, right? I, I I believe I do. Yeah. So I mean, <laughs> sometimes the most revolutionary acts come from the most faithful patriots. <laughs> <laughs> So those of you who are still listening to this episode and have not seen the Downton Abbey movie or maybe not watched Downton Abbey at all, first of all, thank God for you. Second of all, um, so Mosley is a character in Downton Abbey who is consistently portrayed over the years as both very kind of emasculine and low status and also like lacking in confidence and lacking in kind of a social skill, uh, but who is also a great enthusiast for all of the things that make England England. He is he is a, the guy who taught in the in the first big cricket episode, and there are a couple of big cricket episodes. Uh, Mosley, that whole story arc about cricket the first time, mm. Mosley is constantly talking of how much he loves cricket and talking kind of like uh, backseat cricket 
training and teaching everybody how to throw a cricket ball or roll it or hold the bat or whatever. And then when he actually gets up, uh, you know, he strikes out on the first pitch or whatever. And it's like, oh, whatever, whatever it is that happens when you fail tremendously at cricket. And and so and Mosley is kind of unlucky in life, unlucky in love. But but we love him. And he eventually becomes a teacher uh, because he is ultimately a kind of kind and generous person who only really wants to share the things that he cares about with other people. Uh, and in this movie, particular movie, he is incredibly, incredibly excited that the king and queen are coming to Downton Abbey. And he sort of begs to be able to don his livery to serve his monarch, uh, and uh, which is very in character for Mosley. And he's dressed up like, you know, a, a, a dandy soldier kind of thing with his epaulets and everything. Um, and after the whole Downton Abbey downstairs crew has launched their little mutiny against the king's direct servants, right? Kind of their argument against centralized power and authority and constitutional monarchy by saying that within the county of York, right, the people of the county of York uh, are, are serving the king and not the king's servants from London, right? Um, and so they're in York County, I think, right? Uh, maybe they're in a different one. I thought it was York. Uh, they go to York sometimes to take the to take the railroad cars. But anyway, that's, that's where it is, right? York. And anyway, after their whole plot has been made real and the the evil cook has been kind of drugged and locked in his room, and Mrs. Patmore gets to make the meal for the king, and all of the evil footmen are sent away on a on a bum trip to London, and the evil butler is locked in his room, uh, and and uh, Carson gets to kind of serve, and and Mosley gets to serve. He, uh, when the king is giving compliments to the meal, Mosley speaks up and tells everybody, right, that actually the servants of Downton are the ones who did it, and, and Mrs. Patmore is the one who uh, who made it. And in doing this, realizes he has committed the grossest and most heinous faux pas possible in, like, the history of his life, right? And there is this moment which is shot like a Jordan Peele horror movie, <laughs> right, where, where it's like – it's like – well, it's, it's a combination of a Jordan Peele horror movie and a skate video where we're in, like, fisheye lens with, like, crazy blurry effects, right? And, and we're, like, inside the madness of Mosley's moment of intense, intense embarrassment as he, like, begs his forgiveness from the king of England by curtsying in front of him as low as he possibly can go. And it is the most funny thing that I've seen in so long is Mosley's like debasement and anxiety when he realizes that he is like, even in his moment of triumph, right? Even in the moment where it's like, we served the king and it worked out uh, by speaking in front of the king, which of course we know is really not that terrible of a thing in in our morality right in the we're, we're snapped back to the morality of the day which has been taking breaks throughout the movie but it now snaps back and says oh my god this servant talked right I mean, that is not allowed um and then the queen, anyway. says, the queen says something nice mosley chokes and cora <laughs> has to say mosley her majesty is addressing you <laughs> <laughs> and then he yes. backs out of the and then he backs out of the room like the the equerry and the and and michael sheen in the beginning of the queen the kind of the awkward you know uh you never show your face you never show your back in the presence right right yeah. right but uh, and this is also yeah. this is also part of one of the minor through lines of the of the um movie which is also this sort of revisionist idea that the monarchy rests of the of the old idea that the monarchy rests entirely within the monarch in this this movie puts uh queen oh is it queen mary 
Um, no, it's not Queen Mary. Who's her mother? Uh, her mother is, uh, yeah, no, it is Queen Mary. So Mary of tech, uh, right? Not of tech war, the William Shatner books, but of tech. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is not a tech war crossover people. So, so the, the basically, so, so one of the conventions of constitutional monarchy, right? Is, is that, um, Part of the reason that you have a monarch is that the edicts of the government are sort of assumed that they're going to sometimes be unjust or un, uh, or or cruel, right? Uh, like one of the traditions of common law in, in constitutional monarchy is that like the monarch exists in order to pardon people that for who have been punished by the law in a way that is sort of not morally appropriate. And this is why and this is my understanding of it. Maybe there's a longer tradition, I'm sure, but my understanding of it, at least in terms of how it is kind of popularly justified for things. The reason that the president of the United States can do this is the idea that like we're going to assume that parliament sometimes is going to pass laws that in a given context, you're going to punish people who don't deserve to be punished. And it's the job of the monarch or any sort of governor who has this sort of pardon authority to blame Blunt to the edge of justice, right? In the interest of mercy, and uh, and in this movie puts that squarely with Mary of Tech, Queen Mary, right? Not with George V. That George V has no real understanding of mercy or kindness for people. I mean, he's nice, but he doesn't understand that Bernie that Bertie needs to be home with Edith. He doesn't understand that Mosley needs to be dealt with gracefully because he was showing loyalty and doing the right thing, right? Um, and 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 Queen Mary is the one who's shown as as carrying out that essential role of the monarch. And what I think this is also partially supposed to do is even the gender up a little bit, which is which is uh, in this sort of revision, right? Which is Cora attend, you know, expresses when she says, like, when they're like, well, Cora, how did you do it? How did you get Birdie to stay home, uh, to be allowed to stay home with Edith when the baby is born? And she says, well, Birdie asked the king and I asked the queen, right? Which is almost papist of them, because the idea is that the queen, like, the woman is the intercessor, right? <laughs> and, like, you don't pray to God for mercy. You pray to, like, you know, Anne or or the Virgin Mary, right? And, like, they, they're the ones who help you out. Um in this sort of situation. But anyway, that that's that I thought that whole moment was just hilarious because the the irony of it is just so tangled up with everything that's happening in the movie and that point of extreme crisis where it's like, "Oh my god, all the themes of this movie are completely irresolvable." <laughs> right? Like like this movie is like well, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. The, and Downton Abbey exists to square the circle in a pleasurable way, right? right. Like there 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 is a lot of having your souffle and eating it too. And this is not a knock. Oh, yeah. By yeah. the way, oh, this yeah. is, you know, um I I can sort of see in in our times, which uniquely among times in human history, uh we are seeing change uh and disruption that is um, you know, uh, a, a little uncomfortable to live through. Would, wouldn't you agree, Pete, that that our times are times of change and uncomfortable disruption, and that this is unique in the course of human history? <laughs> I'm sure you. Well, as, uh, you know, as you don't Dowager even need Countess, to answer. As the Dowager Countess says, portentously but not really apropos of anything, we must change. <laughs> she's talking about her clothes, but she's not talking about her clothes. She's talking about Wallace Stevens' Supreme Fiction. <laughs> yes, exactly. It must. It must yes. change the Supreme Fiction. Yes. Now, the Supreme Fiction of of you know the Supreme Fiction of Downton Abbey. It, it's actually kind of the Supreme Fiction of the West Wing uh, as well. It's it's how you know how it all how the 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 sort of efficient and the dignified are um 
you know, are made one, right? Mercy, mercy, and mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. The lion has laid down with the lamb, uh, and that that is all, you know, and and all is one. The the aristocrats do have our best interests at heart, and the king is. <laughs> Is there to uh, you know? I'm not saying these things are true, but is what the movie says. <laughs> um, and, right. and yet, there is a kind of. I mean, there, there is a kind of. You know, I don't know. When Maggie Smith at the end of the movie, I it got a little dusty in the theater, Pete. Where when Maggie Smith had said at the end of the movie, like you know, our, our, our ancestors live differently from us. Our descendants will live differently from us, but for all of them, Downton Abbey will be a part of their lives. And I thought, well, it, it is true. Like Downton Abbey, the television show will be a part (laughs) of their lives. And that's not, you know, that's not wrong that like the, um, you know, the times change and the, the, you know, the tense may change a little bit, but like, it still, uh, it still is, was, ever, shall be, world, world without end, amen. Let's talk about the end, uh, of the film, Pete, before we wrap our conversation up. I, I, I identified the third movie in this, this sort of like multi-genre, um, you know, heteroglossia as, uh, as tragedy. And I think that's, mm-hmm. I think that that's appropriate. And I think there are a couple of things, um, you know, I, I, uh, I think, I think that there are a couple of things like if, if you, you, I think I've used this rubric before on the podcast that, that, um, the, uh, that comedy is about the, the rebellion of the body against the mind. Right. And, and I, by extension, tragedy is about a, a sort of, um, a, a sort of imposition of the mind on the body, right? And that's you know mm-hmm. tragic flaw or you know villainy or something like that. That that like it's about an, an um, imposition of the mind on the body. And as as yeah. uh, the Dowager Countess said, uh, Machiavelli had many qualities. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's funny cause she's played for laughs a lot of the time, but all her scheming, all her Machiavellian scheming is, could sort of lead to tragedy if it weren't for the kind of the bumptious goodwill of everyone around her all the time. And, and, but, but, you know, I don't know the, the, the like death comes for us all. And when she talks to Mary about like, uh, death coming for her and, you know, you're the best of me and there are things that you can't, there are things that you cannot but choose to accept uh, is one. Now, the other one is Mary, the Prince Royal, who it says, um, I'm going to choose, you know, the monarchy is more important to me than my own happiness. And she has a, you know, as I say, a slightly hopeful um, colloquy with with her husband, where she sort of lays down the law for him, like, no, things are going to change around here. But like, I, you know, I don't have a ton of hope that that's all that effective. And, and it won't be all that, uh, all that effective, because it's dumb. But uh, it is, um, I mean, it's, it's dumb to expect that it'll work, but, but it is noble, you know, uh, I don't, I don't know. PG, do you agree that, uh, the third, the third movement of this story is a tragedy or would you call it something else? You know, I, th- I'm, I, I was not thinking that when I watched it, but from you describing it and thinking about it, I can see what you mean that throughout the course of the third act of the movie, a bunch of people end up basically 
losing and making sacrifices and kind of confronting things that are consequences of what it is that they have to do. Um, I mean, tragedy is tricky for it because I don't know if the bad things that are happening to them are uh, are the sort of thing that ought to be avoided. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess I, that, and that, that's sort of a question about tragedy, I suppose, because the, the idea of tragedy is not like, oh, man, if I'm in ever in, in Oedipus's shoes, I'm sure not going to order the execution of anybody. Right. Like because it might turn out to be me. Right. Or whatever it is. Um, like, I don't I don't even want to know. No, it's not. The point of tragedy is not to, like, point out to you case studies of the sorts of very specific kinds of mistakes that you should not make in highly unlikely situations. Right. The idea is that you make a sort of choice. And then you end up paying for it. Uh, and right. And you're saying the imposition of the of the mind on the body is like, you know, your flaw is the choice that you made. And then the choice ends up kind of destroying, destroying you or kind of running against what it is you need to survive. Or, or in constraining. Some way. I mean, constraining in Downton Abbey, where so much is about kind of agency, about the rise of the bourgeoisie, about, you know, the, the sovereignty of the people in a weird roundabout way about like people's, you know, bettering themselves, about people rising like a souffle. You know, you can rise so far until you're constrained by circumstance, you know, and that's right. like to me, that's what and 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 and. And this is what the actually why it's pretty well calibrated, like really managed to thread the needle um, by being touching, touching and not modeling. Like when uh, when, you know, Mary is like, don't you know, don't. Oh, I'm so sad that, that you're ill and you don't have long to live. And she says, no, don't. You know, I've had a long and good life, you know, with mm-hmm. a lot of with a lot of good things. Uh, with a lot of good things in it, right? Like this is not, these things are to be kind of accepted as, as, uh, as part of the story, but I guess it's, I, I guess the sort of, there is a, there is a note of sort of sadness in, in recognizing, in recognizing your limitations. And I guess like part of, part of this is about the kind of transition that, that Downton Abbey is, um, chronicling right there's no sadness in recognizing your limitations if you are in your right and proper place in the elizabethan great chain of being right there's no because it is just it is just what you are it's what you're for it's why you're here this is it you know right Um, you should be happy in a sort of teleological way yeah right like you're fulfilling your divine purpose right you are in you are living in accordance with your nature or with your you know and that is uh you know that is a capital g um, that is a capital G good thing. Uh, you, you, let me put this, let me put this another way. Uh, you, you wouldn't need to remark with relief that God is a monarchist unless there was a great deal of anxiety that he wasn't. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, yeah. and the idea that like, oh, there are, there are limitations, there are constraints, there are things that we would wish were otherwise. And we have to kind of, you know, we have to, to find a graceful way to accept that. Right. Right. Um, and that like, and that this is, you know, to, to a certain extent you like, you cast your lot, even, even the very privileged sort of cast their lot in marriage is a, is a great, you know, mostly in Downton Abbey in marriage. And you kind of live with what, you live with the the results of that, or Imelda Staunton, right? Like has a, a wonderful affair and a love child, and and creates what could be a terrible um, and difficult, uh, awkward situation. Mm, interesting, but the you know, but that like. 
but that, you know, you, you have to kind of like, you have to kind of put your, your stake in the ground somewhere and say, you know, this is what I am. And that's, that's not what I am, whether it's like I am mortal or I am going to sort of come out as this woman's mother or I, you know, or at least, you know, visit my inheritance upon her or something like that. You gotta, you know, at a certain point you, you, uh, you have to say who you are. And I guess that is the thing that I'm trying to think what form most closely matches like what's going on, like what literary form feels to me the closest. I wonder if it's like a ballad, like this is like the ballad of Downton Abbey is like, you know, like Lady Mary was was bright and young and all the world was all before her. She picked her suitor uh, and and yet all the guns that missed him, you know, he fell out and he died in a car crash. And then like Lady Mary in a car like, crash, did the in thing. A car crash, he fell out and he died in a car crash. In a car crash, <laughs> yep, in, in a car crash, in a car crash, he fell out and died in a car crash. So Lady Mary met a bunch of dudes and and Jorah Mormont was not to be and uh, and nor and nor the task of of marrying up to any noble that she could see and so she tasked herself with managing a business that no one thought she could do right and uh and and and, and though whatever she succeeded- happened whatever happened to poor mr pamuk Mr. Pamuk, Mr. mr pamuk mr pamuk to poor mr pamuk he's dead and then, and then Mary got with Henry, and Henry was also fine. And Henry's friend Charlie met him on the starting line. And Mary cheered for Charlie, and and Charlie and Henry high fived. And and only, but only Henry came to meet Mary at the finish line because a car crash, a car crash. Charlie died in a car crash, a car crash. Right? Like Mary's life is like a series of like this really great thing is going to happen. This really great thing is going to happen. And somebody died, and somebody died, or somebody broke up with her, or she broke up with somebody, or it didn't work out. Right? It's like. Um, um, but there's a there's a sense that like the window, it's the sort of the window, the automobile window, <laughs> and every Mary, Mary, everywhere Mary suitors went, they were not thrown clear of the window. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it's like, you know, Lady Edith and Bertie and the story of Bertie who gave up his charge to be friends with the king. I mean, keep or in mind, like, Bert- a, a, like a late Shakespearean romance or something like that, because there are magical transformations at the end of this movie of Lucy I mean, yeah. and of Mary, etc. But also keep in mind the consequences. Like I'm going through my head, the history of this royal family. Bertie's thing with Edith has consequences, right? Because the guy that Bertie was supposed to go on the tour with oh. ends up being the king who abdicates. Oh my God. Right? Had he not, and then yep. we, we never would have had Claire Foy winning Emmy Awards. <laughs> But the idea is that, like, the guy that Bertie doesn't help ends up failing as king of England in his duty. And, like, we're supposed to no, – we do we do 100 percent believe that Bertie has made the right decision. But, yeah, as you said, there's an element of tragedy to it. But I would almost I would almost chalk it up to the kind of tragedy that's, like, a good story with a bad ending rather than, like, Bertie necessarily, like, made some sort of error and everybody suffered for it. Um, you know what I mean? It's uh, – it's, it's, it has it has the feeling – of like uh what is it is it's a it's a it's a story and it's like in a major key but it ends in a minor cadence or yeah. something i don't know it's the opposite of how it how it usually goes with the the picardy third the major third where you ex- would expect a minor one and then in you know downton abbey movie 37 uh post brexit they're all diabetic and they can't get insulin after brexit <laughs> so you know oh gosh on the continent and <laughs> Oh no! Um, at least at that point, Thomas has fled to Bulgaria, where he works uh, <laughs> for a tech startup, and he's 150 years old or something. 
think his head's in a jar. I don't even know. Um, did you know that the actor playing Thomas was voted the sexiest man in soap operas? <laughs> oh, this was something fun I saw um, as sort of little in the sort of potpourri of apropos of nothing. Looking up the history of the actors who were in Downton Abbey, because my wife asked me, who are these people, right? Who are all the people in the show? Who are they before the show? And it occurred to me that I had never checked. So many of the actors who play upstairs characters are pulled from the stage, yep. and so many of the characters who play downstairs actors are pulled from like IFV cop dramas, uh-huh. right? Like, and like Mr. Bates has been in like 15 different cop shows that all have the same name of like, you know, Grimy Street, right? Like, uh, unexpected encounter, right? Like, or I don't know, like, yeah, you know, he plays the Mad Lib type. Uh, though there are yeah. some really good sort of moody British limited series, uh, that you can get. On, on Netflix. I commend Shetland especially to you. Um, but yeah, but I, it's probably something to do with the ages, the relative ages of the characters and like how the careers of successful actors of those generations were likely to go, you know, um, because the, the upstairs people were by and large older. No, I take that back. That's, uh, but you know, I mean, did, did, was Sybil, uh, Jessica Brown Findlay, does, does, uh, was she, uh, on soap operas? I'll, I'll bet she was. Oh, she, I think she was on soap operas. She was yeah, on, yeah. she was on, but she belongs uh, in the downstairs. She doesn't belong with the people upstairs. Lady Sybil actually was, uh, Lady Sybil actually, uh, was on the TV show Misfits, uh, which was, I think, a Channel 4 show in which she actually created a fascist army, um, in this, Ooh. you know, techno, in this kind of sci fi, uh, adventure uh, show called called Misfits, and she was a uh, you know uh, like a she was like the queen of of Dare, uh, British Dare, and creating a fascist army, which I always suspected that Dare was. Anyway, Pete, uh, I think we need to uh, I think we need to leave it there. Like Robert and Cora dancing at the end of Downton Abbey. Uh, it, it, I I do love our event, our adventures, but isn't it so nice when they're over? <laughs> yes, thank you very much. I hope that we, yeah. I think I hope we all meet our ends as gracefully and with as much of a of self satisfaction as uh, as dear old uh, Robert Crawley, who very gracefully did not have a large part of this movie. Mm. So very gracefully indeed. So, so. Uh, thank you very much for listening, Pete. Thank you for uh, making this visit, for making ready the house at Downton with me. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Until then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. Me. It, it probably, probably does doesn't deserve. deserve. I hope that Downton Abbey, the movie, too, is better than Sex in the City, the movie, too, because uh, it won the box office this weekend, which means that maybe next time they have to go to Egypt. Little George, the the heir. Yeah, Downton Babies is the sequel. And it's like little baby, <laughs> little baby, Mr. Bates, little baby Anna, little baby Cora, all of them, little baby Thomas. The possibilities are endless. This franchise can go on forever.